You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 51. Hello again, Metamorphs. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamorph City story universe. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you and keep you up to date on my life and my writing. So let's get started, shall we? This week I'm bringing you the second half of Chapter 13 in my Metamorph City novel, Things Unseen. As with last week's episode, this installment will contain sexual situations and adult language, so if you're in the office or with your kids, you might want to push pause on this one for now. Otherwise, follow me along to this week's spoiler-filled story recap. The power of the Telvari Rift has already taken two lives in Metamore City. Bernard Travers, a shuttle pilot, and Harold Rains, one of Bernard's passengers on an illegal expedition to the inner rift zone. Both men's bodies were warped and twisted by the rift's magic, leaving them no longer fully human. It is this power that has caught the attention of Malcolm Ardvalos, the vampire crime lord. Malcolm's people hired Evan Selindi, a runner and social engineer, to obtain the autopsy records on Rains and Travers. Evan was not told, however, that these records were in the hands of Dr. Morgan Drowling, the only vampire in the Metamore City Police Department. Evan went undercover as an agent of the Ministry of Health, and tried to convince Morgan to hand over the files so they could figure out whether the men's deaths were the start of some kind of epidemic. Morgan was charmed by Evan, and agreed to help him in exchange for a date later that night. Morgan thoroughly enjoyed their date, and invited Evan to come up to her apartment and review the files. While he was there, she seduced him, and then introduced him to the pleasures of being tied up and played with by a powerful and dominant woman. To his own surprise, Evan found himself submitting happily to the vampire's control, but he might have second thoughts when, with his arms and legs still cuffed to the bed, Morgan asks him, What's your real name? Things Unseen A novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 13 Continued Evan froze. Drowling's smile turned wicked, the light of triumph sparkling in her two dark eyes. Evan glanced quickly away, but she slid sinuously up his body, took his face gently in both hands, and lifted his eyes to hers. The darkness of her vampiric gaze reached out, embraced him, swallowed him. The burning of his amulet was a dull, distant pain, all but powerless against the full force of Drowling's will. "'Tell me your name,' she said, her voice gentle but unyielding. "'Evan,' he whispered. "'Evan Selindy. "'And who are you working for, Evan Selindy?' Evan's head spun. He couldn't tell. He mustn't tell. But he couldn't resist this woman either. Her will was too strong. 
the power of her vampiric bloodline too great. He felt his mouth opening, his lungs filling to form the words. And then a pressure that had been building at the back of his mind broke through to the surface, and the personality that thought of itself as Evan faded away. Flesh and bone shifted, reshaping themselves in accordance with ancient magic. Hips broadened, breasts swelled, reproductive organs repurposed themselves in seconds for new duties. Wrists and ankles became more slender, and the smaller hands and feet they were attached to slipped themselves free of the leather straps. One hand touched one of the tattoos, and full, feminine lips spoke the trigger word that would activate the spell inside it. Lawsuit, Ava Salindi said. The arcane mark flared and vanished from her skin as the totemic strength of an enraged grizzly bear filled her body. She grabbed Drowling's arms, drew her knees up to her chest, and kicked the astonished vampire off of her. Drowling flew across the room, struck the opposite wall with a negligible loss of height, and fell to the floor. She looked up, staring mutely at Ava, too stunned to even use her hypnotic gaze. Ava snatched her pants from where they'd fallen and pulled out a crucifix, which she'd insisted on bringing along over her brother's objections. She held up the sign of the yew tree, and Drowling flinched away, lowering her eyes. Right, Ava said. She was breathing hard, but it did nothing to disguise the anger in her voice. I was content to let Evan play out this ridiculous little fantasy of his, but I draw a hard line between business and pleasure. And, dearie, you just crossed it. Drowling's eyes flickered over to the autopsy reports on the desk. Don't even think it, Ava snapped. She raised the crucifix again, interposing herself between the vampire and the stack of files. Come at me any time in the next six hours, and I'll rip your head off. Let's see you regenerate from that. Drowling's jaw clenched. I understand. Good. Now... Get up slowly, and turn to face the wall. The vampire did as instructed. Ava grabbed the files, moved them over to the nightstand by the door, then grabbed the cuffs and chains from the bed. Do as I say, and I won't hurt you. Spread your legs, lean forward, and put your arms behind your back. Somewhat to Ava's surprise, Drowling did so without complaint. She stood there, meekly, as Ava shackled her wrists together, then hooked them up to her ankles in an upside-down Y-shape. Drowling couldn't move her legs too far apart or forward without pulling painfully on her own shoulder blades. Ava was sure she could break the chains if she had a mind to, unless Drowling had gotten them enchanted for binding other vampires, which she supposed was possible. In any case, she wasn't making any effort to get loose. Right. Ava said again, when the last of the chains was in place. Now, you're going to shuffle back this way and lie back on the bed. She gripped Drowling's arms at the elbows, her enhanced strength serving as a quiet warning. As you wish. The words came out softly, but they struck Ava with their tone. There was nothing sullen in them, nothing angry, but there was a quiet heat about them. Not the heat of rage, but... Ava stepped around and looked at Drowling, 
standing naked and shackled in front of her, head down, lip trembling, chest heaving with breaths she didn't actually need to take. Experimentally, Ava reached out and pinched one of her nipples. Drowling gasped, but did not move away. Oh my gods! You're getting off on this, aren't you? You're not a dom. You're a switch. Drowling's eyes only looked up at her for an instant, but the look inside them was molten with arousal. You've got me all wrapped up like this, ma'am. What are you going to do with me? Ava felt a slow grin come across her face. Maybe, just this once, mixing business and pleasure wasn't such a bad idea. Lie back on the bed, she ordered. We'll see what I can come up with. Well now, you don't see this every day. Malcolm Ardvalos gazed with fascination at the lurid autopsy photos of Bernard Travers and Harold Raines II. He wouldn't want to be anywhere near the actual bodies, of course. He shuddered at the thought of Travers's charred flesh staining his suit. But viewed through a camera lens, there was a sort of macabre artistry about them. What do you make of it, William? William Westerson sat across the table from him in Malcolm's study, diligently making notes on a tablet computer as he pored over the autopsy reports. A slender man of below-average height, with light brown hair, blue eyes, and bland, vaguely unhandsome features, Westerson did not make for an impressive-looking vampire. But it was that innocuousness, combined with his keen, critical mind, which made him such a very impressive spymaster. Malcolm could call on a hundred tall, handsome, athletic men if the urge struck him, as it did from time to time. If all he wanted was brute strength, his options ran into the thousands. There was no one in his organization, however, who could easily replace Westerson. Everything in the reports corroborates what Osprey told us, Westerson said. He allowed himself a brief smile. I always appreciate it when an opponent gift-wraps his own destruction. Once this comes out, support for House Kapler will evaporate. Monopolies are only popular when they're competent. Oh, yes, I agree the political scenario looks most favorable, Malcolm said. But I was actually thinking less about acquisition than application. He held up the wide-angle photo of Travers. If these men brought back some sort of power from the rift, what else could it do? How might this be controlled, channeled into more productive ends? And what of their four companions? No other bodies have appeared. Might they have already found a way to master this power? Westerson shrugged. Impossible to say without more data, my lord. None of the others have shown their faces in public since the incident. Malcolm frowned. Indeed. His ruminations were interrupted by a chime from his desk phone. He pushed the button for the speakerphone. Yes, what is it? A harried-sounding voice answered. My lord, the Lightbringers are here in the front lobby. They want to talk to you. Malcolm suppressed a sigh. Tell them to call my secretary and make an appointment. Agent Starson has the number. My lord, Agent Starson is with them. The thrall lowered his voice. 
and he has the sword. Westerson looked up in alarm. Malcolm felt something similar, but he didn't let it show. Westerson here, the spymaster said. Are they in blacks or whites? Whites, sir, the thrall said. Malcolm and Westerson exchanged a look. Lothanasian business suits could be safely postponed with courtesy and bureaucracy. Lothanasian battle dress could not. Understood, Malcolm said wearily. Escort Agent Starson to the White Room. I'll receive him there. Just Agent Starson, please. The others can wait in the lobby. Yes, my lord. Malcolm rang off and rose to his feet, glancing in half-apology at Westerson. I'm afraid I'll have to leave you to it for now, William. The other man nodded once and rose with him. I'll alert Special Security. Quietly, if you please, Malcolm warned. This is an intimidation move on Janus's part. I don't want violence if we can avoid it. Understood, my lord. I'll keep an eye on the monitors. If he tries anything, I'll activate the countermeasures. Malcolm made it to the White Room before Janus did. The room lived up to its name, thanks to stain-repelling enchantments on the carpet, walls, and furniture. Malcolm spotted a tiny smudge on the glass coffee table that had been missed by the less perceptive eyes of his human chambermaid. He polished it out with a handkerchief, then settled in his white leather, high-backed chair and waited. Two minutes later, a thrall knocked on the opposite door and opened it. Agent Starson, my lord. Malcolm gestured permissively, and the thrall opened the door wider to admit the lightbringer. Janus entered the room with a grim expression and a posture that was confident but guarded. Malcolm watched with quiet respect as the lightbringer scanned the room upon entering, checking the corners keeping his body centered and ready to respond to any threat. Only when he had discounted any possibility of ambush did he turn his attention to Malcolm. Unlike most who entered his presence, Janus met his eyes fearlessly. A vampire's domination gaze, even one as strong as Malcolm's, could not touch him. Not while he had the sword. A lemisil rode quietly in its scabbard across his back, but Malcolm could feel the malevolent hunger of the thing from here. He pushed back the instinctive fear that eldritch monstrosity awakened in him, and nodded cordially at his guest. Good evening, Janus. You're looking well. He waved a hand, briefly encompassing Janus's spotless white uniform. I must say, I never realized how well you compliment my decor. Janus's frown deepened, but he did not rise to the bait. He gave a curt nod in return. Malcolm, I've been trying to schedule a meeting with you since Friday, and your secretary was giving me the runaround. Since I was in the neighborhood, I decided to try the direct approach. Malcolm smiled slightly. Ah, my apologies, then. I'm afraid she has rather militant ideas about guarding my personal time— irrespective of my wishes. She thinks I work too hard. He gestured to the couch at his left. Please, have a seat. Tell me what brings you to my door with such urgency. Thank you. I'll stand, Janus said evenly. This won't take long. Malcolm spread his hands in an as-you-will expression. 
It's come to my attention that you've taken an interest in House Kapler, Janus said. Malcolm shrugged. In a sense, not so much in the house itself as in certain of its entailed holdings. The Telvari rift, Janus said. It's hardly a secret. But this is all dayside business. How does it concern the Lightbringers? It shouldn't. This is just a courtesy call. Janus's mouth crooked up in an ironic smile. We'll be watching House Kapler closely for a while. So if I notice any mysterious disappearances, or sudden personality shifts, or unfortunate accidents, then we'll be coming back here. His eyes lit with blue-white fire, and the smile broadened into a carnivorous grin. All of us. Malcolm smiled back, blandly. I assure you, Janus, the matter with Kapler is entirely politics as usual. Even if I were the sort to engage in such unsavory tactics as you suggest, I would hardly need to use them in this case. Janus gave him a very slight bow. I'm glad we understand one another. Good night, Malcolm. Malcolm returned the bow in kind. Janus turned to go, then paused as the servant opened the door for him. Oh, one more thing. Malcolm raised his eyebrows in polite inquiry. I keep hearing reports of automatic weapons turning up on the street. Fights between gangs are getting nastier. A lot of blood on the walls. Malcolm's mouth tightened. I've heard the same. Didn't seem like your style, Janus said. You know it isn't. Janus nodded. What is it, then? One of your dealers doing some business on the side? No, Malcolm said, flatly. We've checked. Any idea who's behind it? Because if it's someone who falls into my jurisdiction, we may have a shared interest. Malcolm slumped back a little in his chair, abruptly weary of this turn in the conversation. If I had any evidence in that vein, believe me, I would share it. You know how I feel about this sort of collateral damage. Bad for business, Janus said, his voice heavy with irony. Just so. Malcolm examined the ends of his fingernails. Time to schedule another manicure. We've questioned everyone we could find who was connected to the arms sales. Everything traced back to a single alias on the world net, but the alias itself seems to have come from nowhere. The investigation dead ends there. Janus looked thoughtful. Interesting. What's the alias? Malcolm grimaced. Just two words. White Widow. Janus raised an eyebrow. And I take it that doesn't mean anything to you? Malcolm turned his hand palm up. If it did, then it wouldn't be a dead end, would it? Janus conceded this with a shrug, then left without another word. Westerson was already back in the study when Malcolm returned. That was revealing, he said. More so than he realized, I'm sure, Malcolm agreed. He tapped the autopsy photos with one finger. Janus knows something about these, I'm sure of it. The fact that he involved himself at all proves that there's a significant power in play, 
one that both he and House Kappler want to remain concealed. I want to know what it is. Malcolm smiled. I think it's time to invite one of these young nobles to visit our laboratories. Westerson frowned. Do you intend to defy the Lightbringer's warning, then? His voice carried no tone of censure, but then again, it didn't need to. No, of course not. There's no need to target Kapler's son. We'll bring in one of the others for examination. Who is the most vulnerable target? Westerson lifted his tablet and called up the list of the four nobles Osprey had identified. Well, Lady Halloway's right out. I'm not picking a fight with Imperial Intelligence. He scrolled down a page, then looked up at Malcolm. There's the girlfriend, Julia Matthias. Malcolm raised his eyebrows. I dare say going after a Matthias is even more foolish than going after a Halloway. Well, she's not a very important Matthias, Westerson said. Nowhere near the line of succession. She's a throwback, Malcolm said firmly. Matthias needs her for their breeding program. Put her out of play. Westerson tapped in a note on the screen. Fair enough. That leaves Sephra and Lassos. Minor house, few connections, low visibility. Perfect. Send a squad for her at once. We'll need to find her first, Westerson warned. Osprey couldn't supply us with a location. Put an observer on Lady Holloway, Malcolm said. The Lassos girl is important to her, yes? I believe Osprey said as much. We'll let her lead us to the target herself. Westerson made another note, nodded once, and rose to his feet. Very good. I'll let you know the moment we have her in custody. By your leave, my lord? Malcolm waved a hand and sent him on his way. As the spymaster left, Malcolm sank back into his chair and took up the autopsy photos once more. He stared at the images. Bodies mutated, overwhelmed, consumed. By what? Soon he would know. And soon after that, the power would be his to command. And that's the end of chapter 13. So, Malcolm has targeted Sephra for capture. Will the Lightbringers be able to get her back to the Rift before it's too late? And what will Misty Halloway think about Janus's plan to help the symbionts? The story continues next week. Stephen King said... Discipline and constant work are the whetstones upon which the dull knife of talent is honed until it becomes sharp enough, hopefully, to cut through even the toughest meat and gristle. So, let's see how that edge is coming along. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 5,897 words this week over the course of 9.25 hours, for an average writing speed of 638 words per hour. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this script, I have gone 18 days without breaking my chain. 
This was a very good week for me on The Lost and the Least. I've finally gotten back into the rhythm of writing this beast of a novel, and over the course of this week I've nearly finished two full chapters. The manuscript is now up to about 72,000 words. Looking back at the month of April, I wrote a total of 13,432 words over 20 days, for an average of 672 words per day. In total, I spent 19.75 hours writing last month. April was my second lowest month so far in terms of my total word count, but compared to March, I had a 201% increase in my word count and a 229% increase in my butt in chair time. Most importantly, for the last 12 days of the month, I did not miss a single day of writing, and that's a big part of what helped me get my rhythm back. Looking ahead to Balticon 50, the new media programming track is still being ironed out. Jeanette Butler, one of the coordinators, has floated the idea of doing a Metamore City retrospective panel, in addition to the audio drama. I don't know what exactly this might entail, but it sounds like it could be a roundtable discussion with some of my old voice actors, which would be a blast if we can pull it off. I'll keep you all posted on how this turns out. And if you're going to Balticon this year, make sure to join us for the New Media Jubilee. It's going to feature dancing, a costume contest, the Lois McKendrick co-op table, where you can buy merch from me and my fellow podcast authors, and the second annual Tesla Ranger Award, in memory of my beloved nemesis, P.G. Holyfield. It all happens Saturday night, May 28th, starting at 10 p.m. I hope to see you there. And now, the feedback. There's been some great activity lately over on the Fans of Metamorph City Facebook group. After listening to Chapter 12, Ben Clifford drew an awesome and terrifying sketch of the mutated Ezekiel Kapler. Carl Earl posted, I can't hear Evan's dialogue without hearing T. Morris's voice. That was hilarious. Chris, did you have this effect while writing these scenes? Hashtag lawsuit. The short answer is yes. T and Pip are now permanently stuck in my head as the voices of Evan and Ava. This is not a bad thing. April Cheney has binge-listened to all hundred-plus episodes of Metamore City and The Raven and the Writing Desk, and now she's looking for other great podcast novels to listen to. A whole bunch of people jumped in to give their suggestions, and there are some great ones. Nobilis Reed has now made three Metamore City-inspired vodka infusions, Undercity, Syndicate, and now Precinct 9. Balticon is looking more and more fun all the time. And in response to last week's episode, Dennis Pozzi just said, OMG, thank you. You're welcome, Dennis. If you haven't joined us yet, come on over to the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group and check it out. It's a fun community, and it's been growing a lot lately. Hey Chris, it's Sarah Tempterosa. Congrats on episode 50. And yes, please keep bringing us more and more podcast episodes as they change for years to come. This week's TAF chapter was lovely. I uh, had already been kind of excited about it because of their interplay in the office earlier. I think I said something about the fact that it just the fact that she did the pin him to the floor thing and be all like in his face but it not turning into sex right then and there and stuff. That made me really happy. This one, my favorite aspect was the uh, <laughs> her bringing out the bondage gear 
Yes, good on you. Some people like regular handcuffs, and that's fine, or the handcuffs, and that's fine. But I have to tell people at my job where we sell such things on a regular basis, hey, just so you know, like the furry ones are pretty hard underneath the furry. And people can get bruises from them if they easily bruise or if they struggle. And people don't realize this. And this is why education is important, whether it be in sex or BDSM, although I don't think they should teach BDSM education in school. I think that's a little bit much. Um, <laughs> but hey, that's what sex educators are for and stuff. But anyway, the seeing Evan relinquishing control like that is very cool, especially because the whole, you know, hey, you don't really peg him for the kind of person who, <laughs> peg, the kind of person who would relinquish control, but, well, Morgan is Morgan. She's kind of more than his match, I feel like. I feel like he's definitely not quite at her level. But then again, that might just be mainly because I'm like a Morgan fangirl, kind of. I mean, this just kind of makes me like her even more. Hey, Sarah. I know you know this already, but I think it's important to note it here for the less experienced folks in our audience. Just because you're sexually submissive in the bedroom, it doesn't mean you are a weak person. There are lots of high-powered, dominant alpha personalities in the world who go out and kick ass in their day jobs, but when they get back to their partner at the end of the day, they want someone else to take control. In that one area of their lives, they don't have to be dominant. They don't have to be in charge. There's a freedom in that kind of submission, which is an idea that we've explored with the vampires and their thralls, but this is the first time we've seen it from someone who's as strong as Evan. And now we've seen it from Morgan, too. I'll be interested to hear what you think, now that you've seen this other side of Morgan's personality. Oh, the safe word being lawsuit, that is freaking perfect. I, I I also find it funny that he that he like kind of explained to her what he meant by safe word. Although I have the feeling that you probably did that just so that if any readers slash listeners didn't know what it was, it's defined. Because you know, if she has cuffs and doesn't know what safe the word safe word means, then that's a problem. Right. No, obviously Morgan knows what a safe word is, but Evan wants more than just her verbal agreement. He wants her to take a magically binding oath, and that requires her to be specific about what it is she's swearing to. It does have the side benefit of cueing in the audience to what a safe word is, but extracting the oath from Morgan was the reason for the exchange. As for the safe word itself, I must confess that the idea of using lawsuit is not original to me. A friend of a friend used to use that as her safe word, and her reasoning for it was the same as Evan's. I found the idea so hilarious that I knew I had to use it in a story someday. Thanks for calling in. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082 followed by the pound sign. My Facebook page is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And if you want to support the show and help me keep making it, you can sign up for a monthly pledge at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. All you need is a credit card or a PayPal account. The links will be in the show notes. That's all for this week. 
Tune in next time for more fiction fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.